Hello, everyone. This is Shane. And this is Stan. We wanted to make a brief statement ahead of today's show. Unfortunately, Dave's out of town. He couldn't participate in recording this week's episode or this statement with us, but he joins us in our message. And that is the host of the Dive Down want to make our beliefs very clear to you. And that is that we believe Black Lives Matter. In the intro of the show, you're going to hear me make a pretty vague statement regarding the current events that are taking place in the United States and around the world. I think I just wanted to say something that didn't offend anyone. And by doing that, it served no one, I think. After the fact, I and we realize that we aren't really concerned if we offend anyone who is not aligned with our beliefs on these matters. Yeah. We share the commitment of many of our listeners, hopefully all of our listeners, in educating ourselves on the unfathomable pain faced by people of color in the United States and beyond. All proceeds from this week's episode will go to Black Lives Matter Global Network and several other organizations that fight for justice on behalf of oppressed people and communities. We encourage our friends and listeners to support marginalized communities when and where you can. And we have included some resources that you too can consider in the fight to end institutional racism and support justice for oppressed communities all around us. Thank you for listening to this. Thank you for listening to this episode. And thank you for continuing to be a listener of The Dive Down. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike, focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Cave Dan here in New Haven, Connecticut, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Cave Dan, it's good to see you again, my friend. You know, every week I look forward to these conversations we can have about magic. It really, it takes my mind off of what's going on around me in the world. It gives me something to look forward to and and just, you know, chill out with my buds, my bud Cave Dan, my weekly conversational partner. Absolutely. This is like family dinner night, practically. Um, how have you been all week? I haven't seen you since, what was it, last Monday? Uh do you, I mean, okay, full disclosure, it's been, a t- it's been a tough week. We record on Mondays. Our podcast comes out on Friday. I'm hopeful that this week improves. I'm hopeful that uh, all our listeners out there are seeing some more positivity in their lives, that they're hearing positive news, that they're experiencing positive things. And if not, that things are tr- are trending towards the direction that you all want. I think that, you know, full disclosure, it's it's been a it's been tough. I think for all of us, and it's kind of a little bit selfish feeling for me to you know jump on a podcast and try to talk only about magic. And I know that the audience doesn't want to, you know, some of the audience probably is like you know just just stick to magic. And of course, we're going to stick to magic here. Um, but I think fundamentally that it makes sense for everyone to pay attention to the world around them and try to get as much information as possible through reputable news sources uh, and try to enact change if you believe that change should take place. 
And so I think that that's been in the back of my mind. I am glad to be taking a little break from that with you all. Talk about positivity and magic. Have some enjoyable conversation with you all. And I hope that uh, listeners out there can enjoy it this week. Here, here. Yeah, very well said. So I want to circle back to that. But before we do, we do have a guest, a special guest, a frequent guest of the pod that I would like to welcome also joining us this week from Chicago, Illinois. It is Stanislav. What's up? What's up? Dan, you were the best hire we ever made all those years ago. You started as an intern. Now you're running the show. Frankly, you, you've learned a lot. You've grown a lot. At first, I didn't think you had it in you. But now here you are. You're my boss. It's weird. It's so weird. But I'm grateful. And also second everything that uh, Shane said. And listen, if you need someone to chat about like the world outside and, and some of the things that are stressing you out, listeners, you can always reach out to us. You know how to do that. You can pick our brains. We're, we're here for you. Mm. Cave Dan, thank you for joining us this week. You're the host of a really excellent podcast. I sometimes almost think of it as a sister podcast because I know we share a lot of listeners. We share some patrons. You're from Faithless Brewing. Yeah, very much so. I think we are the younger sibling of the dive down. Um, Only a little bit. You were, you were hot on our heels. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if this is the right time to say this, but you guys are the reason that we started Faithless Brewing. So get out of town. You're like, hey, there's a, there's a space in this modern podcast world for us to exist. I'm glad... We could have a, a small amount of inspiration for you all, <laughs> but you really, you've really taken it in your own, your own direction. And that's always been awesome. Right. Is like, you know, the, the concepts are, are similar, you know, getting better at magic, focusing on enjoying magic and learning from each other and the, you know, the audience and, and just, you know, trying to be, uh, I think a positive force for the modern and pioneer communities. Yeah, thank you for saying so. I think it also shares a theme of like magic with friends. I'm fortunate enough to have two of my very best friends, uh, Damon and David, who are my co-hosts on Faithless Brewing. And I think that's kind of what makes the whole thing like feel sustainable and, and really just like a big part of just uh, the rhythm of my magic life. Rhythm of my li magic life. Rhythm <laughs> of my magic life. That's, my, that's one of my favorite uh, club singles. I, I don't know that song. Cave Dan, as long as you're buttering our bread, can I say, and I mean this truly from the bottom of my heart, you have one of my favorite voices in magic. I feel like I could listen to you talk about anything and enjoy it. And if you and Dave Harbarger, our other co-host who is out this week, but we'll be back next week, if the two of you spun off and made your own podcast, I would scream. I'd be like a teen at a Beatles concert. Yeah, so with all that being said, we're giving you uh, all of the speaking roles in tonight's podcast. We're going to sit back and just sort of you know, guide you with complex hand signals. That's, that's amazing to hear. I mean, because you two sound exactly like you sound uh, on the podcast talking to you right now through our little uh, video conferencing call. I would hope so, because that's the microphones we use. Which is yeah. always a shock, because, you know, I can't stand the sound of my own voice, so it's just, it's always... A, weird to listen back to an episode that's enough pleasantries for one intro on this week's episode we are breaking down monday's bnr announcement and react to the new companion rules that were introduced by wizards of the coast then we dive into all the things that we love about magic and try to look ahead towards some of the products games and decks on the horizon finally we wind down with some listener questions submitted by the dive down nation for our guest cave dan 
But first, some housekeeping. All right. Housekeeping this week goes over to me. So with full control, I will thank our new patron in Ross. Thanks very much for your support. And of course, thanks very much to our newer, older, long-term citizens of the Dive Down Nation. We honestly would not be keeping doing this without your support. So thanks again. Uh, increased tiers. We have Blue Cheese. Blue Cheese, in one of our extremely long-time citizens of the nation. Thank you for moving up a tier, Blue Cheese. And also thanks to Purple Platt for their review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate that feedback. It makes us feel good about ourselves. It helps people find us on the internets. So thank you. Um, if you're interested in what the Dive Down Nation is, it is our Patreon can find us at patreon.com slash the dive down. And what that does is allow you to give us a little bit of your hard earned money because you like what we're doing and it helps us keep going. You can do a dollar an episode. You can do a crazy amount of $15 an episode because you really, really like us. And some people do that, which I find mind blowing. Uh, there are different uh, benefits at different tiers. You can get things like tokens, Stickers, pins, play mats. What am I thinking? Of? Am I forgetting anything? Oh, at uh, you know the highest tier, you can request an episode topic and work with us to create uh, a custom episode of your design every six months. And those are honestly super fun to do. You heard one recently from Jacob when we talked about uh, advantage in magic, how to know if you're winning in magic and what to do and how to reclaim advantage in magic. I love that episode, by the way. Fantastic episode. Yeah, and that was a blast to do. And those are benefits that we get from you all being citizens and benefits you all can get from being citizens. So head over to patreon.com slash the dive down if you are interested. Did you mention the Slack on that? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, the, the Slack is is one of the best best reasons to be a citizen of the nation because there's always good conversation going on. Of course, we had some good uh, BNR conversation today. There's always people designing new decks, talking about changes in the meta, talking about their favorite uh, Dark Souls game. You know what? Are the, what they're playing on Switch? What they're watching on Hulu? So there's a you know off-topic and on-topic convo, and it's definitely one of my favorite parts of having a Patreon is having the community around it. Yeah, one of the things that I've really loved about Slack are all the community magic tournaments that people have been organizing, especially right now during this era of quarantine and isolation. And one of the ways that you can play magic online and play with any card pretty much ever is with mana traders because they let you rent cards for your Magic Online account. And then you can use them to play Modern, Pioneer, Standard if you're nasty. I think you can play Commander. And listen, you can use a Mana Traders account while supporting the Dive Down. If you sign up with coupon code the Dive Down, all one word, you get 15% off your first three months of service, help support the show while playing Magic. It's win-win. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love Mana Traders. It has transformed the way that I experience um, just magic as a whole. And I'm glad you mentioned the Slack. If you had not pitched it, I would have pitched it uh, myself. Because <laughs> this is jumping the gun somewhat into the topic of uh, this this theme of the show. But just in terms of like, what is magic as a hobby? You know, it's a lot of time that we spend thinking about the game, whether that's listening to podcasts, talking with your friends. Um, people who don't play magic that much sometimes ask me, oh, you must play a lot of magic games. And actually, that's such a small part of it. But it's actually little community spaces, um, 
places where you can sort of have like a little a little community, a little family, and that's what the dive down nation Slack is actually. It's it's just a wonderful place uh, to just uh, connect with people on something that everyone's very passionate about together. It's true. We've made some real friends, some real friends from like all over the world. There are people who I talk to about their cats and children in Norway and beyond. It's really cool. <laughs> Stan, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna punt this over to you now for the breakdown. Yeah. So breakdown news desk. Dateline, the world, June 1st, 2020, a new banned and restricted announcement was published today featuring both bans in standard and suspensions in historic, which we will not talk about at all. I think they've unsuspended cards if I've been paying attention, I think. It's It's the free bans that don't get you wild cards. Yeah. The sneaky bans. But perhaps more importantly to us, the announcement formally changed the ruling of the companion mechanic. And Dan, I'm not sure if you know this, but whenever we get a new BNR, one of the things that we like to do, if it pertains to some of the formats and topics we talk about on the dive down, is we'll actually read some of the language and some excerpts from the article and reflect on it at large and piece by piece. So I love interpreting text and picking apart sentences very closely, especially when they come from corporations. (laughs) All right, so Ian Duke's article today states that starting June 4th, the companion mechanic rule now reads, once per game, any time that you could cast a sorcery, so during your main phase when the stack is empty, you can pay three generic mana to put your companion from your sideboard into your hand. This is a special action, not an activated ability, which means it does not use the stack. And this happens immediately and cannot be responded to. It cannot be countered or stopped by cards like Phyrexian Revoker. Or even Nimble Obstructionist. It can't be nimbly obstructed, cannot be stifled. All right, initial initial thoughts on this, Dan. Yeah, so I spent a good chunk of my week last week just trying to sort through all the different possibilities for what might happen. And it seemed like, broadly speaking, there were two directions that things could have gone. One was that there would be some kind of blanket ban to the effect of, you know, the companion mechanic no longer functions in constructed tournaments or something like that. Um, Like it's just a card in your deck type thing. Right, right. Basically strip away that ability from competitive one-on-one. Now, the other direction was to somehow uh, tweak one of the knobs. Um, And it looks like that's the direction they went. So Magic, as we know, is a game of many, many resources, whether that's the mana cost of a card. Uh, people talk about starting with different numbers of cards in your hand. There's You could tweak the power toughness, the lines of text on a card. Um, and even the companions themselves were using this new resource of your deck construction and even a sideboard slot, if you consider that a cost. So this is really interesting that they chose this path, um, saying, okay, we're not going to take the cards away. We're not going to ban them. We're just going to try to tweak the knobs a little bit so to make it more of a fair exchange. Uh, would you guys agree with that assessment? Totally. I mean, what once was free now is not, you know, it used to cost no mana. Now it costs three mana. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's like a tax basically, right? It's, it's just sort of a blanket tax. And it's interesting to me that you mentioned Stan, it's not, it's like a non-stack action. And so in that way, it can, it can really just function as an increased cost. Like Dan, you mentioned they could tweak a variety of knobs and the one they chose was just mana cost. And so you're not, I mean, depending on how you want to play it, if you want to play it as is just for three mana more, you can, 
because your opponent doesn't gain priority. They can't use something like a Culligan's command to make you discard it, for instance, once you put it in your hand. Like if you immediately have the mana, like if you have six, you pay three to get Luris in your hand, you can immediately pay three and get Luris back out because your opponent doesn't get any kind of priority back. So really, if you play it, if you look at it as just a mana increase, that's all it can be. It also allows, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but it does, does allow for some sequencing changes that does then open up the opportunity for the opponent to interact with your hand in some fashion, which then also does offer kind of further ideas of you know cost versus benefit analysis and, and opportunity costs and uh, analyzing what could be in your opponent's hand and so on. All right, moving on. Let's let's look at some of these excerpts. <laughs> cool, Shane. Let's go. It's already 18 minutes. Shane, I disagree wholeheartedly, but I'm just going to look at some excerpts from this article. All right, Ian writes, We're introducing a change to the companion mechanic that is motivated by game balance and metagame share across play environments. Our reason for making this change is based on metagame data and play rates of companion decks across all formats and on player feedback on repetitive gameplay patterns. As a group, decks using companions have too high of win rates and metagame share in Standard, Pioneer, and Modern, and have already necessitated bans in Legacy and Vintage. This trend represents a long-term problem for the health and diversity of all formats. Rather than go down the path of making several individual adjustments to the banned list of each format, we feel better. The better solution is to reduce the advantage gained by using a companion across the board. Yeah, that's a paragraph. Repetitive gameplay patterns, check. Yes and, you know, sort of a yes and no, right? Like, it's, it's like, it's repetitive in terms of we can expect certain cards at certain times, or perhaps certain cards at certain board states, more than just, like, a curve, but we've been we've we have been seeing a lot of the decks sort of shifting around and changing shape and um, changing construction while still employing the most powerful companions most often. So yeah, I'd say that there are repetitive times in which you can expect a companion to be used, but I'm not sure that the gameplay patterns are fundamentally the same from game to game. I disagree. I think that this is the, the biggest thing that was frustrating about companions so when we're talking about learning what an archetype does you think of the play pattern you know classic jund they're planning mm -hmm. to like play liliana on turn three and that's central to their plan but then when you're actually sitting down against a jund player they don't always have liliana on turn three and that's part of what makes the game so dynamic and interesting is seeing it play out different ways sure these Lurus and urian decks you know they're going to play the Lurus and urian pretty much on their schedule it happens every game and so the gameplay is interesting, interactive, and there's uh, ways you can strategize around that. But just the fact that it's guaranteed to happen. Yeah, that's frustrating. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting, too, Dan, that you have added a third way of saying Yorian to this podcast. <laughs> uh, Stanley's oh. towards like a, like sort of like a scoop out. Stanley's towards like a Yurian. And I'm like, yeah. I'm a Yorian man, and you're a Yurian man. I am. I, I like suppose it. I am. <laughs> a Yurian man. What about too high win rates and metagame share? Does that line up with some of your experiences playing with or against these decks? Like, was it just, were you obviously favored if you're running a companion deck against your average non-companion deck? Yeah. Yeah. 
I wish that were not the case, but my experience says yes. And they've cited the magic number of 55% in there. Yep. When you, once you get to high 50s, you are screwed um, unless the metagame can respond to you. Um, and, you know, if you've been listening to our pod, you know that Companions are a heavy player in Modern and even heavier players in Pioneer. So they have a big metagame share. Yeah, I, I do think this is good news for people who loved Mitra's Bobble because there was a while where I think we may have even mentioned it on the show where it felt like maybe they were going to try to ban Bobble for Luris's sins, quote unquote. And clearly they're trying to avoid that, right? Rather than maybe punish specific cards that are good and synergistic with these companions, they'd rather try to tweak the knob of this rule, as Dan put it. And I hope it works. I mean, one outcome is that this is similar to the Bridge from Below ban uh, in in multiple ways. But in, in what I'm thinking is that it could be similar in the sense that this might not be enough of a nerf. Uh, I think Urian especially is still very, very dangerous. I can talk about why later. But um, the alternative reading is that, yeah, they didn't you know ban an innocent card like Bauble. Uh, bridge from Below deserves a second chance in Modern or something like that. I, I don't know. I don't have any strong feelings about that. All right, the article continues. The result we intend is to reduce the metagame share of companion decks while still capturing the spirit of the mechanic's design and still having companions be worth building around in many cases. So this, I think, is really their goal in an outline, right? They want to both balance the format while keeping these cards and and as many of the surrounding cards playable. But I do think that worth building around in many cases is a little ambitious from a competitive perspective, right? Yeah. Like what do they mean exactly? Right. Like worth building around by who in one environment. What do you think, Dan? Oh, I'm not selling my Urians or Lurises just yet. I think uh, these are very much still cars to be reckoned with. Let me pose a yeah. hypothetical, let me pose a hypothetical question to you. Suppose they'd announced this change and said that it costs two mana to put your companion into your hand. Would you be yeah. so confident that the companions were dead? Probably no. not, right? Well, who said they were dead? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, two and three is a big deal. I mean, every every mana counts, and especially in the formats that we talk about on the pod. But yeah, two is definitely more appetizing than three, sure. Okay, right. but how big a difference is that? And are you willing to go with that extra mana for your companion? I think a lot of decks will say, yes, we are. And that might narrow the range of decks that want to use them to either big mana decks um, or decks that just don't need to play them until very late in the game. But some of the strongest companions that we've seen, Urian, Lurist, they're already well equipped to play a long game. You know, there are control decks that play those. They'd be happy to pay the uh, the three mana techs. I think I heard a really interesting podcast episode last week about the card Fires of Invention and Pioneer. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys yeah, heard that one. That. It, was pretty, it was okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you have if you have fires out, it's not like you're doing anything else with your three mana. True, true. And I think in the case of Luris, it basically turns your three drop into a four drop. You know, in a lot of games, and maybe that's going to be the new repetitive gameplay that we kind of have to get used to. Well, I mean, that's a huge tempo disadvantage, right? Where you're saying like turn three, I'm going to put Luris in my hand, then turn four, I'm going to deploy it. I mean, that's a that's a lot to ask. I think. Guess you got to hold up that force of negation. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's this. What's interesting is like capturing the spirit of the mechanics design is inherently false because the mechanics design, all the cards are designed around the mechanic. And so now they're changing the mechanic fundamentally. And so, therefore, 
the spirit that they intended in the design of the cards is fundamentally changed for every one of them. Mm -hmm. And I think like Dan mentioned, and I think we'll talk about this in a little bit is like some of them are going to weather that storm more strongly than others. I've been trying to interpret that one sentence, the spirit of the mechanics design, and I can't quite pin down what they mean, but I think they mean that it is still a bonus card. And I know when a lot of people were trying to analyze what made companions so good, it was the idea that you get a free card and a lot of the proposed fixes that I heard were, oh, well, you should take the free card away and make you start with six cards or something. Mm -hmm. And now having seen the change that they did go with, I think I'm actually pretty happy they didn't go with that route because some of these companions are actually worth many, many cards. Uh, and it's hard to balance just on a card for card exchange. So in that sense, yeah. um, even though the mana tax might be initially unappealing for the eternal formats, which are so much about efficiency, um, in terms of just like giving you a bonus, a free card, if you've gone through the hoop of the deck building construction, that part is retained. Although it's a little sad that the early game companions, like you said, are are, um, are hurt much more by this. Yeah, I, I, I kind of think the next clause sort of speaks to that a little bit. The article goes on to say, we expect that this new version of the companion mechanic will result in a deck building challenge and means of self-expression that some players can opt into rather than being a huge part of the competitive metagame. And A, like, I think this is them kind of like revealing what their goal is for these cards moving forward and maybe magic in general. But, you know, prior to this rule change, it kind of felt to me like your deck more or less had to run these mascots to compete but now they're really framing it as more of a means of self-expression and dan you know you're the brewer of the three of us right now do you think that companion restrictions offer enough room to design in a way that is self-expressive without being forced to run the most efficient tools that you know, have like proven synergies with companion, you know, such as like Bobble or Sila Fire with Luris or uh, Astrolabe with um, Urion? You know, I do. I do think that they allow for exactly that. I have always been of the school of thought that restrictions will breed creativity. Um, actually, the companion spells out a very specific restriction, but any card, even if it's not a companion, if you're trying to build a deck around it, it has restrictions on it. You just have to figure out what those are and having efficient tools to work with a restriction is not inherently a problem. I mean, you mentioned Seal of Fire. What's wrong with Seal of Fire? That's actually a clever solution the first time someone thought of it. And, yeah. you know, once the puzzle has been solved, it gets less interesting. And I think that's what happened so quickly with Companions that it became sort of everyone got tired of seeing these. But actually the innovation was happening uh, all the time. A very innovative one month in modern history, I think. Yeah, my my thinking on on this is like, are they really going to allow real, like real means of self-expression expression that players can opt into? I think you take, they're taking some air out of the tires of companions in general. Right. And that's kind of a pretty boring way, but an, I think a necessary way, if you're going to change an entire rule set around a mechanic, they're reducing the overall power level down to like, yeah, I guess you could mess with that if you really wanted to type thing besides maybe some of the uber powerful ones that we already know are uber powerful. And so I, I mean, I think they're going to accomplish their goal, which is that it's, it's not going to be a huge part of the competitive metagame, a huge part. I think it'll still be a part. And maybe like Dan was sort of inferring earlier, maybe Urian's still busted. Maybe Luris is still busted and we'll have to wait and see. And maybe that's okay if they are right. 
like cards can be busted and still be fair and and within the power level that we find acceptable for the formats that we play but ian's article goes on to say by charging additional mana playing a companion becomes less efficient relative to playing the other cards the player has drawn i found that sentence so interesting and thought-provoking but i'm gonna go on in this way players are more likely to cast their other spells before their companion resulting in more divergent game paths Next, the additional mana will often slow the companions down by a turn, allowing the opponent to interact with it while in the companion player's hand or otherwise giving the opponent an additional turn to plan ahead before the companion hits the battlefield. So, more insights on their intentions and how they expect games to play out moving forward with the companion rule if it stays as it is now. Anyone want to react here or think they may be even, like, looking overlooking something in how the rule change might impact companions and deck building moving forward? Well, that first sentence that you read there about... Let me try that again. (laughs) Well, that first sentence that you read there about the companion being a less efficient play and so you end up playing it last, I think that is a true statement of what the new play pattern is going to be, but that makes me think of what Shane was saying about, like, that is not necessarily an inherently desirable play pattern. I don't know why that's a better way to play companions... And that's probably not in the spirit of what they were thinking when they designed some of these companions. Um, So I think that, yeah, it's going to just change the way that these cards are used. And it's a little bit unfortunate that you're now forced to uh, basically forced to play it as your last card in hand. But I feel like some decks are already in that situation too, though. Like I've been messing around with that red, white equipment deck in modern where it doesn't run bobble. It doesn't run seal of fire. It's kind of like Infect, but with equipments and, and core creatures. Um, and Luris is in the sideboard as a way to make your creatures a little bit more recursive. But like the plan of that deck isn't to get to Luris on turn three. The plan of that deck is to you know play your whole hand. And if you haven't won by then, then maybe cast the Luris to try to get mm. back some creatures that your opponents might be interacting with. And like in certain decks, I think that could be a totally reason reasonable game plan and Maybe reduces some of the feel bads of like dealing with really interactive strategies that you know might thwart your plan going into game one. I think we need to have a quick chat about Urian or Urian, 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 Urian. I don't even remember how I say it now. You I'm want, confused. You want to have an intervention, Dan? I'm just wondering what are your guys' thoughts on on this card, its position in the metagames in Modern and Pioneer up to this point. Like, like, do we, do we like it? Do we not like it? Do we think it's healthy? Do we think it's unhealthy? Broadly speaking, and to clarify, I've already indicated that I think Urian is the one companion that is the least affected by all of these because the, because the Urian decks have tended to just fill themselves up with cantrips and enter the battlefield effects and then just win eventually. It reminds me very much of like a suspend eight win the game card. That's a good point. I never thought about it that way, but yeah, that makes total sense. Um, so now it's to spend nine. So do you think this is a significant change? I don't, but I'm willing to wait and see if if that makes the card more or less problematic because Urian sort of forces you to play a very slow, long game. And although Luris in some cases encouraged players to play hyper-fast strategies, with less access to that, like... We might have less of a Luris versus Urian metagame. And I think that could open up 
to maybe more interesting problem solving down the line and trying to deal with like the control strategy that Urian sort of fits really nicely into. Yeah, I mean, I sort of just broadly feel that you know, Urian isn't necessarily uh, a, a companion that needs to be played on curve. You want to get max value out of it. Um, sending it back in this way isn't necessarily that bad, especially in a fires type deck like we talked about earlier. So I think we might still see some of the same unfortunate patterns that we don't love. I mean, because there's there's really no difference in, say, I have a, a fires down and I have available six mana. I was only going to cast two spells anyways this turn. Um, one of them is going to be this Yorian out of the sideboard, and I'm paying three mana I wasn't going to use. So is there really a tax? Not really. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that we don't we weren't planning to talk about this, but it's worth mentioning that they did ban Fires of Invention in Standard. Jeskai Luka Fires was by far the best deck in Standard. And I think if they had just made the mana tax change uh, without banning Fires from Standard, people would be quickly up in arms say this is not going to help, you know, where the Fires in play, like you're saying that the mana tax is not a tax at all. So yeah. I think that goes hand in hand, at least for standard, which is the, the format that they focus on the most with big changes like this. And then I think they're going to take a wait and see approach to modern and pioneer. And I'm here for it. The article concludes that they have no current plans to make rule changes in the future. And they do think that this solution will be better than just banning cards altogether. <sighs> that was a long article to read. We shared a lot of thoughts yeah, and buried at the very end of that uh, wonderful paragraphs from, from Hasbro is what I think is actually perhaps the most dangerous and troubling thing about this whole change. So we're talking about a functional errata to a flagship mechanic from a set. Um, they did sort of warn us in advance that they were considering this, and I think Companion was such a controversial mechanic that I think players were mostly okay with that. But I think this is kind of a, we should be careful what we wish for. Um, yes, it is the case that Companion is reminder text, so it's not that big of a deal to to change it, but do you want this to happen to your cards in the future, where you're looking at your card in the pack and you're, you're not sure if it's going to do what it says it does a month from now? I would rather that than the card just being strictly unplayable because it's banned. And not to play devil's advocate, but I think it may sound this way a little bit. <laughs> you, love, you love doing this. I do, I guess. Um, and I convinced myself that I believe these things. One of the issues that Paper Magic has struggled with compared to something like Hearthstone or other digital card games is that once a card is printed, you can't change it. You know, like digital yeah. card games can tweak and Magic cannot. Or at least... And they constantly do. I mean, like, like uh, I've been playing a decent amount of Legends of Runeterra recently and they're on like a... I think it's like maybe a bi-weekly tweak schedule right now where you can you can expect some kind of minor response to the meta um you know every so often and it's something that i think people actually look forward to because it it, it makes some significant meta changes even between printings of new cards and can adjust like power level without just full stop bands and i think it's what you're getting at stan right is this something this is kind of like a potential way for Wizards of the Coast to be able to do something like that. Yeah, like this might just be a new solution to possibly prevent more cards from being banned in the future. Or maybe like we've kind of gotten used to a very frequent cadence of bannings in the last like year or two. I, I want to say like really since 2009. And 
you know, what if they try like printing really vague rules and mechanics that they can maybe tweak over time as they play test in like the community? That could be a problem for Magic's future, but that could be also like a potentially exciting change as well. And I'm willing to see how that plays out just because we don't really have a frame of reference of what that might be like in Magic in particular. Are you still playing devil's advocate here, Stan? Or is this actually, this sounds like a disastrous outcome for players who come to think of magic as a paper game and yeah you know if magic cards if they just cost wild cards that would be okay um if it were actually a digital game but it has to be both just to respect sort of what it what it is for so many magic paper players and i don't think that that's an outcome that i would want as someone who's accustomed to also playing in paper with you know cards that don't just get randomly changed in the middle of their lifespan yeah, it's, 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 it's unfortunately, I don't think, very sustainable. Like with Companions, we have this unique example because you can just say Companions act differently. Like this is this is something we can as a, as a blanket change. And it's not like Luris costs two more and Yorian costs four more and Yungatha costs one more. Right. And, and I think like our tolerance for a change, like what they're doing to the companion rule is going to be very different than perhaps our tolerance for changing like the power and toughness on creatures or the mana cost on creatures because i think those are different things right like they just can't do it it's just not sustainable exactly they just did change the mana cost on these creatures though that's exactly what happened and i mean we're thinking in terms of okay that's better for competitive health but i mean what if you're not a competitive player and you had a alurus orion or anything you had a kahira a karuga and you love that card you built a deck around it and now the next time you see someone, they say, oh, that costs three more now, by the way, because, you know, the, the legacy player is broke Zerda. So you have to pay six for your Zerda now. And you're like, I'm just a kitchen table player. Like, I'm I'm not a spike. Like, why is my card suddenly changed? I, I spent money on this. I got the foil version. It's just a dangerous path to go down. And I know they said this is not going to set a precedent. This is a one-time deal. But that's that's just not how precedents work. You know, you mentioned bannings. We're just accustomed to them now. They used to apologize for bannings and they do everything they could to not ban. And now they've figured out that players are used to it and we've come to expect it. And maybe we've come to enjoy it in some cases and and really crave them even. Yes. So, I mean, you may be right that this is actually a better path forward to embrace some of the things that make digital games a little more fresh, a little more responsive. But it's a huge change and I I don't think we should undersell that. I think what this sort of gets to is is the risk versus reward aspect for Wizards of the Coast. And we've talked about this in the pod. And I know, uh, I, th- I think Dave has sort of been on the side of you, you miss all the shots you don't take and it makes the game exciting and pushing in certain places is necessary to retain interest. And maybe we have got to the point where we're saying like, okay, this is interesting. And then maybe it's too interesting and needs to be real, you know, real back in. And then we have a ban come into place and that's just the reality of the, of the game. And I think that's the reality we have to face in a, in a paper card game world. I don't think that we can continue to have small uh, tweaks to mechanics, to card text. It's just not something that I think people can really deal with for some of the reasons that Dan mentioned and others on top of that, right? It's just not something that I think is is inherent into a paper game. But I think that what I'm, what's interesting about companions is it's something they could do. There's only 10 of them. It's sort of a, it's a blanket treatment. And I think that some of the cards will be still playable and some of them will not as much like why no, there's no reason for Tron or humans to just throw a Jengatha in the side because they're not going to be able to, they're not going to want to pay the mana just to have it. Like right now it's just a eighth card in your opener. 
uh, in the future, it's probably too expensive for what you're getting. Um, but you know, like you said, Yorian may be something that's still awesome because you can, you don't have to play it on curve. Two part question. Do you guys think that any companions are just dead unplayable now, or do you think any companions might actually be better now? Well, this might not be the spirit in which you mean the question, but I think the really exciting thing to come from all this is that I think people will now seriously consider these companions as main deck cards. A lot of them strike me as cards that if they didn't have the companion clause, they're actually still really unique, really attractive. I'm thinking of Gairuda, I'm thinking of Urian, Luris, even Karuga, um, Zerda. I mean, these are cards that if I didn't know companion was a thing and I just saw the text of these cards, I might want to put them in a 60 card deck. Before you were allowed to do that, but I think what everyone realized quickly was that once you re decided that your deck was interested in that effect, it was just more worth it to meet the condition so that you could play it as a companion. Mm -hmm. uh, so we didn't actually see a deck that wanted a main deck Garuda, but also was free to play odd cost spells. And now I think people will explore that space. And I think that's actually a really interesting space to explore. Yeah, there was definitely something that people were saying about Luris when Luris was spoiled as, oh, I'd, I'd run this without being a companion. So now we can... Uh put the rubber to the road, so to speak, give it a test, give it a spin, see what it's like, potentially. Yeah, I mean, I, I do worry about Obosh in particular. Dan, how do you pronounce Obosh, by the way? I say Obosh. All right, cool. <laughs> what what I, do you say? <laughs> I say Obosh, but okay. our, friend, our, our friend Aspiring Spike said Abush, and I just haven't stopped thinking about that ever since. That's also <laughs> what uh, Lawson Zandy says. He's Oh, yeah? Another another streamer that I like to watch for his crazy brews is Ubush, so maybe he comes from the Aspiring Spike school of companion dialects. I think they're both in the Texas area, so I That's think. right. <laughs> wow, maybe it's a Lone Star accent. Yeah, I, like I said, I, I do wonder about Obosh in particular. I, I sort of have tunnel vision because of the decks that that card has been played in and like I don't necessarily see Ponza wanting to run it main deck as like the curve topper, but... You know, I'm not really great at brewing and, and tweaking per se until I've like played with a deck a lot. So I'm really excited to see where some of these other companions go. Zerda in particular, just like as this really powerful combo enabler. I wonder if it's still just like totally good enough and maybe even unfazed by some of these rule changes in, in modern, especially. Yeah, you can take a wait and see approach or if you just want to try it out yourself. My prediction would be that the decks that were able to generate lots of mana, so specifically Uriah and Urza, uh, or even the red-green Obosh decks, those are ramp decks in their own way. The green-red Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl package generates a lot of mana, and there weren't really any even-cost spells that you're really sad to lose, so I would probably just continue to play the Obosh versions until it was proven that they were not worth it. Time will tell. Any parting thoughts before we wrap up this section and take a break before the dive down? This is longer than our usual breakdown. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Dan. <laughs> Thanks for your articulate and thoughtful positions, Dan. Jeez. I mean, I, I'm okay with that because I feel like this is actually a momentous moment. A momentous moment. Those are the best kind of moments. Yes. <laughs> we may look back on this as the day that, you know, all from now on, all keywords will just come without any explanation and the card will just have a QR code on it so you can look up the current functionality. Oh, man. I didn't think about that. Yeah, no reminder text. I don't want reminder text. We could just play magic on our smartphones. <laughs> all right we're gonna spend some time in the dive down talking about brewing and how the companion rule might impact brewing so let's put a pin in the conversation here we're gonna take a quick break and when we return cave dan from faithless brewing joins us and looking ahead 
reconciling with some of the frustrating aspects of Magic's very recent history, and maybe taking inventory of the positives that keep us engaged as players and podcasters. Stay with us. All right, we are back. And you know, we got to be honest, right? Magic has been in an interesting slash weird slash new place for the last few months. You might think it's positive. You might think it's negative. You might just be uh, living through it. You, you know, the novel coronavirus is impacting our ability to you know gather and play in person with others. There's extremely powerful new cards, new mechanics that are changing the identity that many of us had in our minds when we thought of the formats we're playing. Um, a lot of people are probably overwhelmed by magic and perhaps life right now. You know, and we, and even this week, we see a rules change might be a relief to some people. Um, you know, up through last week, punches kept coming. We had, you know, things that were impacting the things that many of us thought were just the rules of the game that we were playing and how we were playing it and how we were experiencing it in our lives. You know, last week, announcement that all remaining GPs are canceled. Uh, our Planeswalker points histories were considered unnecessary and were unceremoniously deleted from the internet. Um, the magic community is going through a little bit of an identity crisis perhaps right now. We try to figure out what the game is, what the game is in the future. Uh, figure out what normal is and possibly could be for the game and how we experience it and engage with it. Um, today's episode, of course, we wanted to get together with our friend of the show, fellow magic lover, podcast and video YouTube superstar, Dan Shriver, <laughs> aka Cave Dan. Do a little exercise, look ahead, look at how we can embrace some of the things that keep this game and this community fun and engaging for us, uh, share some insights and thoughts about how we think about and perhaps cope with the, the game that might stress us out. Um, you know, to be clear, if you're unhappy with magic right now, thanks for still listening to us. Thanks for engaging with the game through us. We appreciate that. Um, you know, there's, there's not much we can say to suddenly change your mind about what's going on, but what we can do Take stock of where we're at as players and as people, people who engage with the game and with the community. Talk about those feelings and ideas off of uh, another awesome player and member of the community and content creator that we admire and look ahead together. Because whether it comes to magic or other gaming communities or life in general, the future is going to be different. That's not necessarily bad, right? That was That was the initial spiel. Teed it up nicely, Stan. I think Stan. Stan wrote this, right? Stan wrote this, and and I read it for some reason, and I I, I loved reading it. Listen, that's a little peek behind the curtain. Listen, I have a journalism degree, and I get to write sometimes, and this is how I express myself, and it it meant a lot to me to hear you put your own spin on it. That was beautiful. Oh man, I'm I'm my it's dusty in here. <laughs> Someone, someone's putting up some drywall right now. So I think that a lot of what you're saying for me, well, obviously it resonates a lot. Maybe it's just that as being on the content creation side of things, we're more plugged in than most, but I definitely have come across a lot of 
these sentiments. A lot of I've felt this way myself. And I think a lot of it boils down to just the pace of change. It makes me wonder, is that ultimately what we're talking about here? Like the role of change in the game of magic? This is something that Mark Rosewater talks about all the time um, on his articles, on his blog, how change is necessary to keep a game healthy and alive after, I don't know how many years, 27 years? Is that what it's been? Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like what, like 93, I think Alpha was? 94? Yeah, so the fact that we're still here talking and playing this game, talking about it, and just being absorbed in it, it's in many ways bigger than it's ever been. Uh, That obviously would not be possible if the game did not stay fresh, interesting. But at some point, we do do also have to ask, you know, is it too much? Um, Is that what people are sort of struggling with? The sort of, uh, you you mentioned, you know, wave after wave, hit after hit. Uh, There's an idea that modern or has just gone from crisis to crisis. Yeah. It's like sort of starting with War of the Spark, almost. You know what I mean? Like perhaps before that, right? But it sort of felt like since War of the Spark and including War of the Spark, people have, you know, with the Modern Horizons, we talked all about this, you know, late last year, right? We're just talking about the year of 2019 and, and how much what felt like fundamental change to the game. And we and that's happened. That's been for the first five months of 2020, too. Yeah. So if we break it down like further, it's it's not necessarily even just one thing, right? On a, on a show like The Dive Down, we're interested in things like the tournament scene, what decks are changing, what cards are coming in and out of favor. Um, that's just one side of it. Uh, there's even just the sheer volume of products that are being thrown at you. Magic has become kind of a similar to the 24-7 news cycle almost. It seems like we're always in a spoiler season. Yeah. Uh, you know, it used to be four sets a year. Yeah. How many sets do you think were released last year? Or this are year? We talking, are we talking like 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 constructed sets or just kind of like card card cards to buy or pay attention to type thing the latter official releases from uh wizards oh man uh 10 s- seven seven i don't know seven to ten <laughs> <laughs> so 10 is the correct answer for this calendar year from 2020 <laughs> from now through the beginning of june so five months yeah, year to date, 10 have been released and eight more have been announced. And that's grouping all the secret layers as a single product. Oh, my. Um, last year, it was 20 products. And I'm just looking at this website, uh, MTG Picks or something like that. And many of these things are things that, you know, I kind of forgot about them, but they did happen. I remember sort of sort of seeing them. At, at a certain point, you get numb to them. Like, did, did you know there's something called Double Masters that not only has been announced, but many people are outraged about? <laughs> yeah, yeah du- Double Masters. Two for the price of one. Double Unfortunately, the rare for the price of two. <laughs> Double the outrage. Uh, I mean, yeah, and I don't mean to laugh or belittle the people who feel legitimately like disappointed in the pricing, but it's the kind of thing where there's just so much happening that it does start, start to feel like, man, this is uh, maybe it's too much to keep up with. And, you know, if the refrain, oh, this product, maybe it's just not aimed at you can only get you so far. So that's just the new products, you know, the metagame changes, and then everything else, whether that's organized play changes or just anything newsworthy that drops or trends, any little scandal or things that seem like transition steps taken towards digital, erratas, bans. That's all just sort of happening at a pace that feels to me faster than it has ever felt uh, in, in the past. And how do you feel about that? Like, can we do a quick temperature check? One of my favorite things to do on the podcast whenever we introduce a topic are you, do you share some of that frustration? Do you share some of that product and wallet fatigue? And I'd be curious to hear what Shane thinks as well. I definitely understand where those complaints are coming from. Um, so 
as someone like looking for new things to, to talk about and not feeling like I need to buy them. I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's great for just like having things to talk about and staying engaged. Uh, but that also the flip side of that is that, you know, who or what are you engaging with? And you do end up having to engage with um, backlash and negativity. And that I think is something that I, you know, I would like to just sort of take a step back and say, well, wait, wait a second here. Maybe, you know, maybe if we are getting very stressed out by this state of affairs, um, that's not the way it should be. And maybe that's something that we at least can change for ourselves to to not have such a, a draining experience in what is ostensibly our hobby that we you know enjoy and find relaxing. Yeah, and of course, there's some compounding factors, too. And I, we kind of talked about this in the intro to the dive down, which is, you know, we have the novel Corona pandemic, you know, we have our in-person play, which is many of us, and I think many of our listeners, was their primary way of engaging with each other, their friends, their local community, and the game on the whole, right? So you have to figure out what is this game to me if it's not interacting with my paper cards and putting together my deck and sleeving up these cards and putting them in the deck boxes that I love. And like, you know, to both of you, I have not purchased a paper magic card in nearly three months. Do you know how insane that is? The last card, I have not purchased a single magic card since March 2nd. Okay. I bought uh, Gideon of the Trials. March 2nd was the order. I checked it recently. That's why I knew it. It's because I have no reason to buy a paper magic card and I hate it. You know, like, I'm sure my wife likes it because I'm no, I'm not like, I'm not organizing cards in the guest room where I keep all my stuff. I'm not like moving cards around. I don't have like stacks of stuff on my dresser where like I, I'm like, oh, these, these are in process. These, these are my in process, like to be filed cards. Like it, it's, I mean, sometimes it's like a little bit mentally clearing, but it's a, like my engagement with the, the paper game doesn't exist. And that's like, that's a big change. I, I know it's a big change for you, Stan. I assume you, Dan. Um, and I'm sure a high percentage of our listeners. Yeah, man, I can relate. I really, really, really miss going to the local game store. Like, I just can't understate how much that was a part of my social life. How many, like, friends I just haven't seen since quarantine started because, like, jamming cards on Wednesday Night Modern was, like, one of our recurring social engagements that we got to look forward to so i can definitely relate to that and you know the adjustment to not experiencing the paper part of the game that said i am still buying cards and i think part of that is because it's a, a habit that's hard for me to kick but like i was at walgreens getting some like toilet paper and dish soap and they had their last pack of eldraine and i bought a pack of eldraine and I cracked open a Heliod and I felt good. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> I mean, but okay. So we've kind of set the table here, right? Like what, what is there for us to be sort of disconcerted about? But I think the better question is, is what can we do to respond to the change, potential uncertainty, potential, uh, you know, discontentment that many of us and our listeners are feeling like, you know, if it feels like it's too much to deal with, um, you know, something that we thought was the status quo has now been changed or taken away from us. Like, what do you, what are you thinking? Like, Dan, you're our guest. What's kind of the things that pops into your mind, like on, on how you're keeping things in perspective? Oh gosh. 
yeah, I just have some random thoughts on this, and I find myself thinking them frequently. So I'll just throw a couple things out there, and maybe you guys can help me keep things in better perspective. Uh, the first thing is that there is a lot of negativity, and when I kind of unpack that a little bit more, it's negativity specifically on the internet or in social media. I guess I've come to realize that that's kind of like that had been a countervailing force to like playing in person. You know, there's there's the idea that like magic is out there. It's a game that we talk about on these internet forums, um, and whatever is like the problems in magic exist there, and we come into contact with them whenever we engage with magic content or read about it. Go on Reddit or Twitter, God forbid. Uh, but then, like, you go to your game store, you sit down and play some games with your friends, and you remember that, like, you know, this is also what it's all about. Like, this is, like, my happy place. And when that's just sort of uh, indefinitely just taken away um, due to the situation with the pandemic, there's there's no longer a balance in the force. I think that's so big. And that was one of the things that I think kept me going personally when, like, Oko had taken over the format, when Hogek had taken over the format... I'd go to the local game store and I wasn't playing nonstop Oko and Hogak games. I was still just like playing fun games of magic with my friends and the decks that my friends loved and had been mastering. So it still felt more like a community that I was a very active participant in as opposed to like a large, broad game community that I was just trying to like claw my way into through Magic Online, faceless, nameless games of Magic Online, where sometimes I don't even chat with my opponent never look at the chat yeah and i know that this approach or this perspective will not be satisfying to someone who's like really plugged in as a grinder playing you know mpl members that has to reckon with a broken metagame month after month so all the mpa all the mpl players listening to us we apologize <laughs> for not giving you relevant content yeah I, i'm not going to apologize for that i'm okay with that and i feel like people need to remember that a lot of the narrative out there you know it, in some ways it's not disconnected from what those sort of hardcore tournament players are expressing. They have a lot of followers and you know, your voice matters too. If you are like enjoying magic, that's fine. You don't have to feel bad about that. Also, if you are an MPL player and do listen to this podcast, I honestly want to know, like I need, <laughs> I need you to tweet at us and say, Hey, I, I am a high level player and I enjoy your podcast because I, that would be mildly validating to be like, you know, oh, the, oh, this really good player actually actually likes what we're doing. Like, they, they don't they don't think we're complete idiots. This high level player took a break from the auto battlers that they've been jamming online to <laughs> listen to our podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah. Can, can I interrupt? I want to share a little insight into my kind of approach to magic historically, and maybe how that's kind of changed since the quarantine started and maybe Shane, you can like confirm that these are things that I've shared with you and I'm not just sort of like playing a part per se, because I've often approached magic with a bit of ambivalence with regard to the forces that I cannot control. And a lot of that has been my ability to kind of like focus on a handful of decks that I really enjoy and just kind of like jam them through hell and high water. Like, for a long time, I would just play like blue, red control, blue moon style decks, whether or not they were good and would try to like tweak them to whatever the meta was. If it was Oko, I'd play Pyromancer. If it was humans, I'd play Thing in the Ice, what have you. Mm -hmm. And for me, like the most important thing at the end of the day has always been that like I can just cast, draw cards, cast spells and tap my mana. Like it's the 
physical actions of the game itself that I find really compelling and engrossing. And and I've said before, like, I always frame my experience with the game from the LGS first. Like, for me, MTGO was always about practicing decks that I can then take to the LGS. But that mm-hmm. but that's really changed this year because the LGSs can't really support games anymore. So I only have to play online and kind of remind myself that, like, it's still the same actions of the game that kept me compelled with it. You know, whether or not it's the same deck or not, I still just love the act of like managing these cards and drawing them and tapping them and, and, and finding solutions to whatever the card pool I have access to. And that's because that's what's within my control. And when things like powerful new cards get printed or or companions get banned or nerfed, like that wasn't up to me. And all I can really do is react and like continue to play like the parts of the game that I love most and and try to like maintain that that sense of ambivalence because like at the end of the day like dan what you're alluding to like this isn't a zero-sum game like at the end of the day like we're just trying to have fun with the parts of magic that we enjoy most and for some of us that's brewing for some of us that's drawing cards for some of us that's naming the exact right target with meddling mage game one no less in the blind can anyone can, can you guys relate like do you, do you either of you share that like ambivalence or do you find yourself like getting kind of like worked up or emotional about like these things that feel like forces that are forced upon us that we just kind of have to endure that resonates with me uh, so much and i think that some people would think that you're referring to you know decisions made on the corporate side and that's one thing but i experience it as you know the force that i cannot actually push back against is you know, the the swirling mass of opinions on, on Reddit or Twitter, for example. And I've tried shouting back into the void at them. It's like, hey, you know, maybe there's another way of looking at it. And it's it's almost futile. So in that sense, like, yeah, I need a coping strategy for that as well. I think, Stan, one of the things that's tough for me is that I'm sort of results oriented, right? Which is like I want to I want to see I want to I want to see the ability to like be successful and have sort of like decisions that feel like they matter or that I can feel like I can have some time to get pretty good with a strategy and that I can still get good at something when I'm playing maybe like, you know, one league a week or like I'm going to the LGS like three times a month. Right. And with the changes to the the speed at which things feel like they're changing and the power level of cards being injected into the card pool and the impacts of you know the coronavirus pandemic, I think that it's those are some of the reasons that it makes it feel like it's more challenging or like I can't get to the LGS and I'm sort of forced to engage with the, the highly competitive environment of magic online that has a far more dynamic uh, metagame that responds to what is considered kind of the best decks out there. And you're not going to see, you know, the person who's running soul sisters on magic online, as you might see running there, you know, running at the LGS or like the, 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 the super friends friend before super friends was a good deck. You know, you're going to see them at the LGS. But in thinking about let's what I want to talk about right now is kind of one of the things I think there is to be positive about. I mean, we've been hinting at this concept of the episode, which is, okay, we have some limitations, we have some obstacles, we have some external stimuli that can be seen as frustrating or challenging to overcome. But I think there is a lot of things, there are a lot of things to be positive about. And I want to talk about some of those things with you all. Are you ready for this? Dun, dun, dun. One of the things that I like in the response 
to the challenges of physical meeting and physical play right now, there are and will be new ways to play both now and in the future. I think there's, I think there's a gradual and perhaps necessary shift for the health and engagement of newer players that are more used to a digital environment. There's a shift to digital magic. And I think that that can be anxiety inducing for many of us who have played primarily paper, perhaps over the past years. I, I am almost certainly a primarily a paper player. And, you know, when I first started playing, um, Stan, I know you, you played before, I mean, I mean, magic online existed, but when I started playing, there wasn't even magic online, you know, the, like the summer of 95, when I played like fourth edition and ice age. Um, but when I came back, of course there was magic online. And I was, I did a lot of really bad cons drafts because a new player playing cons draft is you're asking for trouble. But I think what's cool about the digital realm of magic is that it gives opportunities that have never been seen before to both established tournament players, but also to those who haven't had real opportunities before to participate and engage in high-level tournament play. And you might be thinking, Shane, what do you mean by that? There's, there's plenty of ways for everyone to engage in, in some kind of tournament play, right? And I was thinking that actually... I think I've seen that I've seen it be pretty narrow because it, many of them have involved being physically present, which is a really limiting factor. There's physical barriers, mental barriers, monetary barriers in the game of paper magic that many of us may not may be privileged enough not to have to appreciate those barriers. Uh, magic online has offered ways for people to play high level digital magic, but most of us who have played magic online are likely willing to admit there's frustrations and issues and barriers with that platform as well. You know, there's time investment issues, even with magic online tournaments, because they essentially are mirroring what's happening in paper, right? You have to wait for every round to finish. You have to devote a large portion of your time in a single long sitting. And that's a significant limitation for a lot of people. Maybe you've got kids. Maybe you've got people that you take care of. Maybe you've got a really weird job. Maybe you work the gig economy and you can't sit in front of your computer for eight hours. There's all sorts of reasons that might happen, right? Those are limitations. That's the reason that leagues have been so popular. But leagues are just one way to engage and don't have super high. They don't have the, the tournament chops or the tournament results, rather, or the benefits of participating in something like a GP, right? So responses to that before I move on, some more thoughts about digital engagement. Good. None. Okay. No, I, <laughs> I, I, I heard you breathe in, Dan. I was, I was just cutting you off. I totally agree. And I, I wonder if this has to do with the moment we're living in now because of COVID, or if this is just the inevitable, you know, conclusion of this game becoming more and more and more digital as there are more ways to play with it online and more ways to engage with magic in the existing platforms. But like, I love seeing these new community tournaments that have been popping up. You know, we talked about the Team Lotus Box ones uh, in some of our previous breakdowns. Friend of the show, Aspiring Spike, organized a no ban modern tournament. Popular streamer Jeff Hoogland hosted a tournament. We talked about MTGMelee.com as like a way to organize your own tournaments online. I mean, any day now, we're going to have a dive down versus Faithless Brewing grudge match. Oh, yeah. We'll lose. <laughs> because, we'll lose. because we'll have no idea what they're playing. We'll make you brew with the decks and then we'll, we'll pick tier decks just to do a Freaky Friday situation. Here. Oh, man. 
Oh man, you've you've seen my brewing. It's not good, Dan. It's, it's not good. It's there's it's deeply flawed. Um, what were you thinking, Dan? Well, I think that the way you framed it in terms of making the game more accessible is something that you know just needs to be repeated. We talk about the enfranchised magic player and it's a luxury hobby, but even acknowledging that, I think we still don't think about just how enfranchised we are, especially you know as magic skews North American and European. That's a good point too. The geographic constraints. Yeah. So something you mentioned, Stan, about you know this these changes are not necessarily zero sum, and I think that's just an important way to keep that in mind when you come across something like okay, there's no more paper tournaments for the rest of the year because of the pandemic, and as a response, you know, high level play is switching to digital. You can read that as oh, they've taken away my beloved paper play and given it to the d- digital players, but I, I mean, I just encourage people to just sort of step back and realize that the game has to incorporate the game has to be big enough to encompass more players than we're than we can just sort of have on our radar at any given time what i like too about the digital environment and the digital tournaments especially as they sort of expand onto arena you know we're getting things like a a historic players tour that's a, a new format only on arena basically and you know, they've, they have hinted at and essentially promised the existence of Pioneer on Magic Arena. So hopefully we see that one day. They're experimenting with asynchronous methods of tournament play, where you don't have to just sit there all day to win something big, right? And so that gives people with dynamic schedules, with other uh, things that they're responsible for, to engage in tournament magic that doesn't require a huge amount of time with a lot of downtime, which is a major issue when it comes to tournament play. I mean, I'm sure you've watched streamers on a, doing a tournament where they're like, how do I kill this downtime? Like, I guess I'm gonna put on like a YouTube and we'll, we'll like sort of like gonna, riff on the YouTube for a while. And that's, I mean, that's it. We're going to watch Top Chef. I, I would love to watch Top Chef, honestly. But um, I think that's what Yama does. He, he, no, he is a, um, with the, he, a different kitchen competition one. Um, but anyway, I mean, I mean this, is, this is not a bash on Yama by any means. I just think it's something that like, it's, it's a fun thing to do, but it's like a necessary evil. I think people would love to be watching some magic, right? Yeah. And so I think that that is an advantage to be looking at too is like I can be doing a tournament that doesn't have a lot of downtime. And I think that is a, a huge boon and p- lots of potential for the future and an asynchronous way of having a real magic tournament. You know, even though we're kind of sharing our love letter to digital magic, do either of you sincerely think that the end of paper is actually in sight? No, of course not. No, that would be, I don't think so. Do you? I don't. I I mean, almost 30 years of making paper products that the game has continued to grow this community and this game with, like, I don't see that just going away without, like, fundamental systemic change and people just outright not buying those cards anymore. Let me pose it as another hypothetical. So let's say that Wizards announced that from now on, they're just not going to print paper magic anymore. What would happen to your paper cards? Would you just throw them away? Or would you go buy up everyone else's paper cards? And play them with your friends. Yeah, man, what a weird scenario to imagine. Like, I I don't actually have an answer because like it's hard to imagine what that would ha- what that would do to the value of cards. Part of me thinks that it would make them like highly sought after collectors' item, and like a lot of people's paper collections suddenly get even more valuable. Um, the opposite might also be true, and they lose all value overnight. But yeah, I'm like I'm an EV guy. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it's all about like how much how much play am I going to get out of these cards? 
And I'm not quick to, but I am willing to look at my collection and be like, am I going to be playing paper in the, in the near future? Do I feel like I can buy back in for potentially less or the same at what I sell at? Like, what's my concern here? Like, you know, well, how much value am I holding that I could turn into something else in the, in the meantime? And so I, it's, I do have a lot of sentiment towards my paper collection and the paper magic, but I'm also definitely willing to be realistic with myself. Sh to be honest with you. Shane, does that realism mean that you think they might they might stop making paper magic in the in the foreseeable future? Not the foreseeable future. I'm I'm not I'm actually less I'm less concerned about uh paper magic being less popular and, and paper magic being not a not a real thing, but I'm sort of more worried in terms of like how much am I gonna use certain cards, right? Like if I'm playing a lot more pioneer than I am modern, am I willing to pare down my fetch line collection? Maybe I'll just keep eight fetches that I know are my, my favorite deck. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. And so that's the kind of stuff that I think about because it's like, well, am I just going to put money into Pioneer, you know, more money into Pioneer and keep my same old modern cards? Or am I going to sort of reallocate money there? And I don't want to go down this road too much, but I think that, I do think that Paper Magic is going to have a place because that's the way a lot of people prefer to engage with the game. The the evidence suggests that Paper Magic, there's just more of it than ever before. I mean, we talked about all the products that are coming out. There's so many products being released. And uh, I think a lot of people are thinking, oh my gosh, so many, I can't keep up with all of them. You don't have to, that's okay. They don't have to be things you have to go buy. But the I think it's better that the game is growing and the signs point to Magic was having great years um, prior to, obviously, the economic impacts of the current recession that we're in. Are there any kind of uh, releases, speaking of those, Stan, Dan, that either of you are looking forward to, the ones on the horizon? Like you said, there's a lot of stuff due this year. Uh, what are you thinking about? The one that I'm most excited for right now is Ikoria Lear of Behemoths, which just releases on Thursday, I think. The Compose Companion Ikoria will be out soon, soon. Um, it's amazing to just sort of think about, you know, every time we get a fresh meta. So that's like a really exciting time. And it's like we're getting that twice. Uh, I'm, of course, Corset 2021 previews will have already started, I think, by the time this episode comes out. So mm -hmm. it's hard to choose. It's, it's a feast for the... I can't wait to try Jumpstart. And I think this might be the way I finally get my fiance to try magic. She likes games. She's never tried magic. She's never been particularly interested in magic. But when I explained this concept of jumpstart to her, just like crack a pack, play a game, it seemed like it could be a, a viable selling point. And we don't know what cards are in there yet. So there may be really cool reprints. But also, like, I love this concept of basically this new mini game of magic that's tied to this like class of products that I think is going to be reasonably costed compared to some master sets. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, man. Any way that gets new players interested in the game or gives us a novel way to play magic has typically been at least fun in the past. So I'm glad that you're excited. I think it's a cool idea. Um, I think, I think, I mean, Zendikar is a cool plane. We've got Zendikar coming in October. It's going to be some cool cards in there. Probably no Eldrazi. <laughs> they guaranteed no Eldrazi, right? More or less, I hope. You promised. I will accept a Hedron, but nothing more. <laughs> if I see a tentacle, I send it back. 
I think if you're listening to us talk about the things we're looking forward to, you can tell that we trend towards the you know modern and pioneer competitive scenes. But even among the dive down listenership, there are secret commander fans and secret arena standard players out there. Oh yeah, it's interesting to just sort of stop by those other communities. You know, go to the uh, Reddit EDH community. They're having a great time over there. It's the year of commander. There's just so much to enjoy. Or something else you could try um, that I've had the chance to do lately is just. Try teaching a friend how to play, or you know, you meet a child who just learned magic and they're so excited to find out that you play this game too. And you, rem- you remember in those moments that like, yeah, the game is just sort of bigger than even the small things that we focus on uh, in our podcasting lives. Yeah, that makes, that kind of naturally transitions into kind of one of the next big points I wanted to, to focus on with you both. And that's, the game is still great. Like fundamentally, the game is a great game to play. It's the reason that all of us are so captivated by it. It's the reason that we have people that listen to this podcast, I think, is that it's a it's an amazing game to be engaged with, right? And I, and I think the, one of the primary w- things that makes it so great to me is that the gameplay is uniquely fun and uniquely thoughtful in an ongoing and dynamic way. Like, I think Magic Diehards would say it's the greatest game ever made. And I think that's likely true because there's there's no game that is like it and that can compare to it because of its longevity. It has a card pool that no other TCG or, or CCG can touch. It has creative designers, creative developers, talented staff that are consistently making and giving us new tools, a really tight rules system, and the amazing community of judges that understand and help us enforce uh, that that rules system. It has crazy mechanics that give us these really deep levels of play, counterplay, interactions, and just fun, right? I think it's no accident that all of the TCGs and CCGs and online CCGs are in some ways spinoffs of Magic. Um, exactly. Is that just because Richard Garfield was a genius and got it right the first time? Yes. <laughs> Well, <laughs> probably yes, but it's also exactly what you were saying, Shane, about just the sheer resources and brain power and experience that uh, you know has been assembled to work on magic and sort of shepherd it through its life is is just massive. I mean, go back and look at some of these great designer searches from the past. Uh, just a collective outpouring of energy and creativity from people passionate about this game, and the best of them, you know, get get sort of swept up into the. Uh, I don't know what you call it, just the, the R&D brain trust, um, really in terms of just like having access to the best game design, uh, Magic is, is is comfortably situated in, in that respect. You know, earlier this year, after Clothus got printed and I was playing against Ponza on MTGO, I started to recognize that this deck is good and this card is dope and I wanted to try it myself and I did and I had a lot of fun playing it. To the point that I started building it in paper because, like I said earlier, old habits die hard. But in picking up this new strategy that I really had no experience with before, I continued to surprise myself as a magic player and kind of student of this game at my ability to keep leveling up and learning new heuristics and finding new ways to improve as a player and a thinker. And I feel like identifying heuristics and best practices whenever I pick up a new deck you know, in any format is one of the not only most exciting things about like playing this game over a longer period of time, but I think that also speaks to 
kind of this point that we're talking about is that this game is so complex and it's so fun that you can never learn everything. And like even the greatest players of all time, they're not just in first place in every tournament that they play in because there's always new challenges. Part of that has to do with variants, but part of that has to do with like there's so many brilliant minds, you know, coalescing around this game that you can never actually be the best. There's no Mozart. We're all Soriardi. What was Mozart? What? What was that movie Amadeus? Uh, Come on, you guys. Someone James Moriarty, uh, the the villainous foil to Mozart. Yeah, that's that's the one. That's the one. Someone who's listening to this podcast is screaming at their radio. (laughs) I mean, that that makes me think, Stan, is like what you're really talking about is like an opportunity to keep learning and keep having new like gameplay opportunities. And I think that it's really informed by like the card pool, right? The card pool of the formats that we focus on here in, in pioneer and modern are just so huge. And then we keep getting new additions to that huge card pool. And I, I think that it's easy to kind of overlook the opportunities that that gives to players of all types to engage with the game on the whole, because we have so many cards. We have so many different formats. Like Dan mentioned uh, EDH earlier. You also mentioned just the kitchen table player as well, Dan, right? Like, I don't really think that these, the concepts of like, you know, Tammy, Jenny and Spike are like these universal truths or anything like that, but there's certainly something for everyone in the game of magic. There's formats for every budget, there's a level of competitive drive is supported. Brewers, Faithless Brewing, right? You can enjoy discovering really cool interactions and untapped power of cards that people are overlooking. You know, you've if you've ever played another game like Hearthstone, like Eternal, like Runeterra, like Gwent, you know, all those games, you probably face the issue of a limited card pool creating a sense of boredom or predictable gameplay. Like, you know, what's going to happen because the decks are very much the same from even week to week to month to month until new cards are injected into the card pool. But with, or, or they might have extended formats that aren't even, they don't exist because they don't have the card pool for it, or they're not really actively curated. You might have something like, I mean, my understanding of wild and hearthstone, for instance, is that it's not really highly curated. It is kind of wild. It's there's there's things that sort of take over the meta uh, for a while. You you might have limited opportunities for your expression through your deck building because of the limited card pool of these games. But we that's never an issue in Magic, right? Besides, it maybe like the very peak of the highest level of competitive gameplay where we have like meta decks that are established. You know, you don't have any of these issues with Magic because there's just so much to do with all the cards that we have available over like the 27 years of magic's existence. Cards are good, man. (laughs) There's so much thing in what you said just there, Shane, that I I feel like, yeah, plus one on all of that. It's for me, it's about like the opportunities that magic provides to like play your way and find the place that find the way that you like to engage with the game. Um, You don't have to play everything, right? Uh, it's just actually like many games within the same game, right? Like magic is many communities, many ways to play, uh, but there's always something to learn and you can really set your own goalposts. You know, you guys talk about it all the time, right? Whether that's learning goals or just getting better at a deck for me, it's like, I'm just trying to explore new cards and see what I can find out about them. 
And that's that's great. I think that's a huge feature of magic, just like the the treasure trove of riches of like ways to play and ways to think about it. I think I've kind of been hinting to it like this concept that the changes feel dynamic in perhaps a negative way sometimes like but I think there's also a positive spin on that which is that there's always new puzzles to solve. And that's something that stuck with me that uh, Jerry and Brian over on Arena Deck Lists mentioned months and months ago, maybe even a year ago now, which is like magic is the greatest game because it's always a new puzzle mm -hmm. to be solved. Right. And it's a puzzle for, for us to work through and think about. And the game is changing in ways we can't ever predict. Right. Like who would have thought that companions would have been a thing? Like just the, just the existence of companions would have been the thing. It would have seemed crazy. And then it was a thing. And the way that we approach and play and evaluate and try to win matches of magic constantly is changing. So that's very engrossing, right? But, you know, of course, we can find the speed of that change frustrating. Yeah. And, and I think that could be a double-edged sword because what that makes me think of, this concept of this changing puzzle, is this notion that's been coming up a lot. We've mentioned it once or twice on the show, which is that people in the community will sometimes say that modern has become a rotating format and has lost its initial mission and identity of being a place where people can have one deck they love that they play forever. And as much as I totally understand where that notion is coming from based on like how rapidly this format has changed over the last couple of years, the notion hasn't always sat right with me either because as quickly and frequently as it seems to change, like every new set and every subsequent ban onward and upward, it always feels to me like we keep seeing the same cast of characters kind of come in and out of the top tiers of the format and of the metagame. And it feels like tier one changes every time a new set comes out, but sometimes that tier one is humans, sometimes that tier one is burn, sometimes that tier one is Tron, and sometimes it's all those decks at once. And I mentioned humans because like, that's a deck that, you know, for the last couple months, really since companions have come out, has seen some play, but has been more or less absent from like the highest levels of successful competitive modern. And that may be unfortunate for people who love that deck, and maybe that's their, their one deck that they play, and perhaps they've been really struggling with it because of its position. But do either of you think like decks, a deck like Humans, for instance, or other really powerful decks in modern that have seen their heyday and maybe have fallen out of favor, do you think they ever really die forever? Or do you think it's just a matter of like hibernation until new cards come out or something changes in the meta and they become better finally? It's probably hibernation, but even if it isn't, even if a deck does die forever, um, this is something that I've come to think about more as I'm seeing people calling for a return to like the golden age of modern. And where would that be? Some people have said, oh, if only we could just turn back the clock uh, on undo 2019. Yeah. Uh, if you guys heard of Project Modern by any chance, it's a sort of a return to pre-war the spark. Um, as you know, that that's what modern should be, or for some people, it's the splinter twin era of modern was, you know, the modern everyone should play. That's that's fine. I'm not saying you shouldn't go play that. I encourage everyone to play their own way, as I've been saying. But I think we shouldn't undersell the role that change and uh, dynamic change has in keeping everything um, that we love about the, the game of magic. That that's essential to have change and churn, like you guys are saying. Uh, whether that's metagame churn or new cards, new things, uh, new mechanics, shaking things up. Nostalgia has a place, but I mean, e even Project Modern, they're, I think they're discovering that they have to add the new sets in. They can't just freeze the game. 
Um, they, they could, but it just wouldn't be as fun. You know, we're not just picking our favorite, the best standard of all time was Return of Africa standard. We're not just playing that every week. Uh, right? You mean uh, cons? Thank you. <laughs> well, you're, you're a faction of the, yeah. <laughs> you can... That's the beautiful thing about it. You you can do that. You can do that. <laughs> everyone's everyone's first standard that they really engage in is the best standard, right? <laughs> hey, you might be onto something, man. You might be onto something. I mean, that's the core of it, right? There's this sense of like there's a greatness to magic, and are we supposed to try to preserve that by keeping everything the same, uh, or is it like? I think there's that instinct that you know we react to all these changes and it's too fast, and so we we're kind of afraid of it. But it has to change, and change is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you might find a new favorite in the next set. Yeah, and the amount of people that I've that I've really seen actually leave the game is is so small, right? Like I think it's the change is really what keeps us engaged and keeps the game engaging. And I think that Watsi is is I think the they've already made it overt that the speed of change may be pushed a little bit too hard recently and that they know this, but their, you know, their lead time is, is so long that, you know, be prepared for some increased change. And then we know we have to dial it back type thing. So we know that Watsi is listening and that they have a goal for the level of you know, satisfaction people have with the game. And I think that that's uh, an important thing to realize is that Watsi does listen they do make changes. They do respond, maybe not in the, the pace that we want, but we do have a group of people who is very interested in making the game enjoyable for as many people as possible because it's good for them and their bottom line and for us as players. So Watsi does make these changes. They do listen to us. And I think that we as a community often rejoice when that happens. And that kind of brings me back to this notion about the gathering portion of magic and how much like more often than not, that's always been my favorite thing about the game, that it is a multiplayer experience. It's something that I get to like engage with my friends, make new friends, sometimes just like have really interesting, challenging games against strangers that I feel really good about when I win because I don't know who they are and I may have just ruined their day and I'm a little competitive in that way. Yeah, I kind of look at magic, like the magic, the game can be like a board game, right? Where like, I'm sure you, both of you guys have some board games. They sit on your shelf and every once in a while, maybe not as often as you want, you've got some friends over, you take the board game off the shelf because it's just made sense of the time. Magic is a game that you can always play somewhere at any time. So magic is just a game like that without the community of people that surrounds it, whether that's other players, whether that's uh, writers that you're reading, podcasts that you're listening to, streamers that you're watching. You have to have people to engage with the game in some way in order to make it what it is. And that's like my one of my I think my favorite part, honestly, about the game is that it inspires so many other people to engage with it along with you at all times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about how much of the time you spend engaging with magic is actually spent shuffling cards and playing games of magic. Yeah, not that much. It's probably a pretty small percentage, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's great. If you run fetch lands, like at least 5%. <laughs> Fair enough, touche. <laughs> that being said, right, I mean, it's this game outside of the game and, you know, the metagame that, that word's already been claimed for tournament scenes, but it's everything else. You know, the, yeah. the entire ecosystem of magic. 
Yeah, like um, the meta dash game, mm-hmm. like the, the like the whole environment of it. And there's just there's just there's just always so much conversation taking place, right? In every facet of the game. And I think you could easily make the case that that's better than it has ever been. Um, the way that we are able to connect with each other, whether that's you know finding small communities around a certain archetype, or just uh, finding a streamer you like and just uh, checking in with them whenever they go live, and you end up seeing little communities build up around that. Um, if you have a question for Huey Jensen or Reed Duke, you can just you know send them a question in their chat and they'll they'll reply mm-hmm. to you. Um, it's amazing what is possible now. Uh, even just sort of the the tone of the community has improved year by year. Um, so I even, even here, I don't want to undersell the role of change. I don't think it's the case that we have to be, you know, trying to be nostalgic for the way it used to be. I, I think it can continue to get better. Yeah. I, I've heard horror stories since I've gotten more involved with magic over the last five or six years about like how much more toxic the community used to be and how much more exclusive it was to like minority players, uh, like women, people who are gender non-binary. And it, you know, used to be this exclusive and maybe in some cases a really ugly boys club and like that's just not the magic community that i've ever been a part of since i've started playing and yeah i love that yeah and you only have to stumble once into a community that is not like that like for a different game to to really appreciate you know how wonderful and special what what the magic community has built itself towards you know through a lot of hard work it didn't just happen randomly um a lot of people stood up to try to say, hey, this is what we want our community to be. And one of the things I like about the community, too, is like how granular it can be. And like because it's so large, how like niche certain things can be or broad certain things can be like you can have a discord for a deck for a, a regional area. You can have a Facebook page for your specific store or you can have like a giant subreddit like, you know, for Modern Magic or for Pioneer. And I think that that's all really cool. Right. Like you can you can engage in as niche as and as local as you want or as broad as you want so this community of content creators that we sometimes refer to one of my favorite parts about it and i have to admit i'm super lucky and privileged that i even get to do this is that every once in a while i get to invite someone who i like admire and am a fan of onto this podcast that i make with my friends and get to just ask them stupid questions listen to them disagree with my stupid opinions and it's a thrill and dan as long as we have you here i would be absolutely remiss if i did not get to ask you some questions about brewing because that is a blind spot of the dive down so just just a few weeks ago we had aspiring spike on the show and and we touched on brewing briefly and and he actually shared his approach to brewing and i kind of want to compare that to yours because Everett said that when he wants to brew up a deck or when he starts thinking about a new deck, it often comes from the perspective of identifying a card or a synergy that he thinks is powerful and can maybe even actively attack a metagame. But from listening to Faithless Brewing, I've gotten the sense that you guys will often, if not usually, take a different approach where it's more to do with actually identifying cards that you just think are cool, interesting, or novel and trying to make them work. Yeah, I think that's a fair way of putting it. I think of Faithless Brewing as we run science experiments every week. So, you know, we we structure the show around a card of the week and we brainstorm, you know, three, four, five different ways to use it. We propose some lists and then we test them. We come back the next week and report back on how we did. Uh, in some ways, I, I make that list of cards in my head as soon as the set is released. I kind of just have a roadmap. I go through the spoiler and I'm like, well, these cards look interesting. And and as as the weeks go by, you know, some of them, the community at large has worked on a lot and there's just no need for me to 
explore it because I feel like it's already been explored. And others, like, it's not that it's something that I think is particularly well positioned in a metagame. I just want to learn what makes a card tick. So I think maybe that's the, the core of the difference. It's just like what any what I want out of the brewing process. I mean, for me, it's just about finding out the, the truth about cards, right? You, you mentioned Arena Decklist. They talk about what is the truth about the format, what's the best deck. And maybe for Aspiring Spike, it's, you know, what is the best way that I can attack the current metagame uh, using tools that seem like they're, they're well-positioned right now. And for me, like partly just because of what I like and partly it fits my goals as a content creator is to just sort of focus on the card itself, um, whether it's well-positioned or not, is something that I hope to discover uh, doing my best to make it competitive. Do you have ambitions of making those cards or those decks competitively viable? Or are you just kind of like ready and willing to kill those darlings and move on if something doesn't work? <laughs> well... I think, you know, every brewer has some dream in the back of their mind that they're, they're going to break it someday and just come up with this brilliant deck no one's thought of and, and win the Pro Tour. But then it's like, <laughs> if that actually came true, if a genie granted that wish, you realize you actually just can't do it, right? You can't actually have a secret deck that no one has seen before the Pro Tour. Because if it actually is good, as soon as the work gets out there, everyone's going to start playing it. <laughs> yeah. It'll become the villain. So you just have to sort of, once you realize that, then you realize that, you know, what is your goal? Like, for you personally, right? And I'm not talking about, you know, what is the MPL player's goal? Just like as as a player, as someone who just like likes thinking about brainstorming ideas, like what do I want out of it? I just want to sort of feel like I made some progress and discovered some things. Even if it's just like, oh, that, that interaction worked out pretty well, even though the deck failed miserably. Maybe I'll just keep that in my back pocket. And then, you know, five weeks later, I see a better player than me, you know, incorporates the same interaction in their deck. Maybe they didn't get it from me, but it's just sort of like, yeah. Right, that, that was nice. Like, I felt like I learned something. I enjoyed just the experience of discovering that one thing uh, and then, you know, seeing it uh, play out in some way in, in the real worlds uh, among sort of the, the more cutthroat metagame. All that being said, you know, the, the competitiveness of brewing, that's there's just a, an inherent tension of that. You guys talk about casual spike as something that has a fundamental contradiction. I use the phrase spike rogue, which is also a contradiction. You know, you're talking about, we want to be competitive, but we also want to be off meta. You, you can't really have it both ways. Uh, you have to sort of set, set the goalpost yourself on a card-to-card, yeah. -card, deck deck-to-deck basis. So something I heard on Pro Points once upon a time was uh, kind of just like a brief aside that Mike Segrist made that I had been obsessed over like ever since, where he said that the best thing you can have going into a game of Magic is a deck advantage. Yes. Mm. I think about that a lot. We think about that a lot on the show. And, and really, I wanted to ask you as a brewer how you think about that and, and maybe what your thoughts are on a, having a deck advantage versus a skill advantage and specifically like do you think playing a deck that you're very experienced with it very experienced with is more valuable than approaching maybe a tournament with a very novel deck that opponents might not be expecting that you're trying to surprise them with so if the goal is to win the match or the tournament uh you should definitely go with the deck you're experienced with and that you've been practicing for a while, that you've been studying. So the Mike Sigrist approach. But you mentioned Pro Points. You know, he has a co-host on that with Sam Black, who is one of the most you know, famous you know, Hall of Fame caliber brewers. And he's actually someone that is a sort of inspiration to me in terms of like how he approaches the deck building process. He talks about just the discovery process. He wants to try to take a card and help that card sort of become its best self. 
So he'll push as far as he can. He'll try to think through a card from beginning to end, top to bottom, and try to figure out what does this card need to be surrounded with to make it tick and build the best version of a deck around that card that he can. Maybe he'll even play that in tournaments. And then maybe at the end of the end result of all that process is that it's just the worst version of a meta deck. And that that's fine. That that's an acceptable outcome. So in that sense, you know, it's there's no right or wrong answer to that. I think that everything that Mike Sigris said about, yeah, you can have a deck edge or a skill edge if the goal is to win. For me, that's just one of the goals. That's a nice bonus, but uh, I don't think about that too much. I lose a lot all the time. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, what are your goals as a player, Stan or Shane? Shane, you go first. I want to hear yeah, your goals. Like, that's a really good question right now. It's like, I haven't thought about that for a minute, honestly. Like, what are my goals as a player? And I think my primary goal as a player is to to feel like I am winning and I know why I'm winning. Like, so that's mm. kind of like, that's, that's sort of a spiky mentality, right? Like, it's like, I, you know, I think most people who play do want to win the game. It feels good. You know, t- you know, tickles the serotonin receptors and the dendrites up in your skull makes you feel good. But like, I think more importantly is a lot of times is, is knowing how you played in a way that navigated you to that win feels really good and feels really satisfying. And I like opportunities for games that allow me to do that. And then other, I have goals related to sort of the meta dash game of magic, right? Which is engaging with the community, engaging with my friends, uh, doing the podcast is, is a magic related goal and an enjoyment that's not gameplay related hardly at all. And that's just sort of a different way to engage with the, the game on the whole. But in terms of gameplay, I think that's kind of you know what, what I said earlier. I think my goal is when I identify that there's a new deck that I like to play and then start to recognize that I'm getting better with it, that's usually the dragon I'm chasing. Like I, I want to feel like I can identify my level up moments whenever I pick up a new strategy and commit to like focusing on that strategy for an extended period of time. Um, Cause that's really hard to do. I think even that first part is really hard to do to find like that deck that you enjoy, especially like in a game of magic where there's like endless possibilities and strategies and configurations. Like last week I discovered that tap out control was a thing. Never knew that. Um, but like knowing that my hard work pays off and kind of being able to point to like, wow, this is kind of what Shane said. Like, this is the decision I made because I know enough about this deck and this matchup that like, I wouldn't have made this unless I put the time into it. Seeing those moments is really rewarding for me. I still sometimes lose, but knowing that I made a good decision along the way to that loss is, is still okay. I mean, I think those are great goals and that's the only message it's it's weird that I think this it's weird to think this as a brewing message, but setting your own goalposts and knowing what you want out of you know the whole process of playing magic is like the number one thing I want to convey to people who are just thinking about you know, is it how do I brew? Can I brew? Like, yeah, be prepared to lose and just be prepared to think about, okay, that's okay. Like, what did I take away from this? Um I think you'll find that it's actually really rewarding just the process of searching for cards. Uh, Scryfall is your very best friend. I've gotten quite good at Scryfall searches. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> looking for weird turns of phrase in Oracle text. You just get to know different sides of the game. 
even saying that, you know, this is a podcast about modern or pioneer, what do those words mean to people? Is modern just the tier one metagame? Is pioneer just, you know, the archetypes that are winning tournaments? Or is it more than that? I mean, is it the entire card pool and all the potential strategies that are waiting to be discovered? Uh, it's okay to like sort of switch between those roles. I mean, I play tier decks all the time just for fun. I also brew. Uh, you can do both. What tier decks do you like to play? <laughs> well, I guess if I answer this question honestly, you'll discover that they're not really tier decks. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Serum Powder Eldrazi. Uh, that that one's been a casualty of of the last year. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like Jund. Uh, I'm going to call Niv Mizzet a tier deck. That's my all-time favorite deck. Oh, yeah, of course. Two. Of course. What about in Pioneer? In Pioneer, I do not have a tier deck that I can call my own at this time. But I'm looking for one. Open suggestions. All right. When you find out, we'll have you back. <laughs> All right. So we got a ton of great questions from the community ahead of this episode. And I'd love to give some time back to the people who submitted those questions to us and to you, Dan. So how about we take a really quick break, take a breather, a sip of water. And when we return, we can wind down with another Q&A. But this time with questions from the Dive Down Nation. Stay with us. All right, we're back again. And as Stan mentioned, we'll use the wind down to ask some listener questions from the Dive Down Nation um, for Cave Dan of Faithless Brewing again. So the first question we have from Electrolyze. I like this question because it lets you talk about one of your newest content creation avenues. How has producing content for Wizards changed how you brew? Are you less likely to go all out when Paul Cheon is going to be judging you? So what is Electrolyze <laughs> talking about, Dan, if people don't know? Yeah, you mentioned that I'm a famous YouTuber, and I'm just trying that phrase out for the first time right now. That, that sounds ridiculous to me. <laughs> but I am now doing a little bit of video content together with my colleagues at Faithless Brewing, Damon and David. So the three of us have joined the cast of a new show. It's a video show. Um, it's called Rogue Refinery. And this is actually part of a series of shows. Uh, Wizards of the Coast is actually trying to uh, put out some new VODs. Um, so they're all hosted on the main Magic the Gathering YouTube channel. So there's a show called The Advantage Bar with uh, Maria Bartoldi, Riley Knight, Cedric Phillips, uh, Corey Baumuster, Corbin Hustler. You know, the real, real famous celebrities. <laughs> they're talking about Standard all the time. Uh, I think... Um, Marshall Sutcliffe has a show on Limited. Rich Hagan has a show interviewing MPL players. And then there's also, amidst all that, a deck building show, a show in which we pick a card of the week and sort of put it through its paces, not just on Standard, but also in Modern and Pioneer. So that's called Rogue Refinery. That's hosted by Paul Chion and Ailey Loney. And it has the three of us from Faith and it has the three of us from Faithless Brewing on there as well. We're putting together decks, we're playing them, we're talking about them, and you can even see gameplay from our testing leagues. That's awesome. Has has it impacted how you brew at all? Are you able to just do whatever you want? <laughs> well, so the thing about Paul Chion is uh, he's an old school gamer. He's worn so many hats. And what I'm discovering is that if he is very, very nostalgic for the old spicy decks he used to play back in his uh, playing and streaming career. So uh, he's very excited to see whatever we come up with in modern and especially pioneer. For Rogue Refinery, I've been playing in the standard seat. So the cards, I think, as he sees like what I do with the card, he's thinking of his time on play design or whatever. <laughs> as a commentator of Mythic Championships, that sort of thing. 
So I'm not sure if uh, he enjoys those decks as much, but it's interesting to see, like, he, yeah, you, you learn a lot about people that way. They're, he loves this place. Yeah. I was really excited to see Rogue Refinery get launched just because I know it's the product of a lot of hard work from you and your co-hosts. And I think it's always awesome to see, like, Wizards recognize, like, some of the really positive, hardworking members of the community that uh, can really contribute to the players who are looking for new ways to engage with the game. So I tip my yeah, hat. So I definitely recommend, I know that, you know, not everyone who listens to podcasts has time to sit down and watch a video. I certainly don't watch a ton of videos, but it's kind of a new experiment from wizards to just try to offer video on demand content. So check out the whole lineup. And if you enjoy like seeing content in pioneer and modern, it, we even show magic online gameplay, uh, let them know because I mean, that's, it's all very experimental. Um, so we're definitely interested in your feedback and yeah hope you check it out right on so we have a question from jason that i really like because a it's super timely and b i think this is a player that you've talked about on faithless brewing this is kilgore trout on mtgo a brewer and a very active member in the dive down nation who asks assuming the companion mechanic is significantly nerfed we're basically entering an open meta now how do you approach brewing in such a metagame? And do you do anything different than in perhaps a more solved metagame? So I don't do anything different, um, but I'm interested to hear what you guys would answer this question as well. I mean, I usually just wait until like the very first modern or pioneer challenge and the 5-0 deck dump and like pick a deck that's like, oh, this looks like what I've been playing. I like that this is kind of addressing the changes. I'm going to see if this mm. works and, and kind of take it from there. I'm, I'm very reactive in that regard. Like, I, I'm a filthy net decker and proud of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not the brewer at all. So, I, I mean, like, my, my response is like, can I, can I, can I play Mono Green Planeswalkers again? Can I, can I, can I play like my favorite as my favorite deck sort of back? Like how am I have to tweak it? Like that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. There's always a part of that for me. Like if I see a new spin on blue moon, there is an increased chance that I will try that just because like, that's a deck that kind of comes and goes. It's always somewhere between tier three and tier 2.5. And like, maybe when I can get, get some action in that tier 2.5 range, that's, that's an exciting time. You guys can only say that you're not brewers so many times before I have to call you out on it because it's just not true. It's just not true. The evidence is there in your past, uh, in your past episodes. You brewed some spicy numbers, and I, I hope this is not giving away too many dive down nation secrets. But in the Slack channel, there is a wonderful channel called the Brew Down, with tons of players who you know they're interested in what you have to say about the tier one decks, and they also just trying out. They love trying out their own uh, crazy brews. So. It doesn't have to be an either-or thing. It's okay to, to be both at the same time. That's true. Thank you for keeping us honest. <laughs> <laughs> I like a question that uh, Sid asks. What are what are components of cards that make them brew-worthy, in your opinion? Like, is it like a, is it like a gut feeling? Are there like criteria you're looking for? Like, what makes you want to brew around a card? Yeah, so for me personally, it's a card that has a very high ceiling and also a very specific ask that I think can be solved in interesting ways. So if I feel like there's a puzzle that I can solve in an unexpected way, um, then I'm very interested in the card. Sometimes that means that, like I alluded to, you know, 
if a puzzle gets solved too quickly, it's just not interesting anymore. So sometimes mm-hmm. there'll be a card where like, oh, I think I know what I want to do with that. But if everyone else has already figured it out, I just sort of lose interest. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not the spiky answer. That's just for me personally, you know, it ceases to be interesting if I don't feel it's, there's, there's a cleverness to it that I find rewarding and just keeps me engaged with, with that process. So it's a bit of a, a silly answer, but it is what it is. I really like this question from Odin because it's a concept that I know, like I've talked about with friends, whether or not it's even possible. It's, it's a very recurring theme in magic communities in general. And he asks, what do you think the odds are of a brand new deck emerging in modern? Are there any unexplored avenues left considering the vast card pool? The odds of a brand new deck emerging in modern. And I kind of think that Odin here means without any new cards being printed. Like, is there maybe some untapped tier one synergy that just no one's identified yet? I would put the odds at 94.7%, plus or minus 3%. What do you guys think? <laughs> well, it's one of those things where someone like Aspiring Spike, I mean, this is not to to put down your all brewing chops, but like what's Spike consistently will bring a new deck that sticks around. Like some, not always. I mean, you and you all have done this too with like with, with Niv, of course, right? And probably other things I'm not even thinking of. But you know, mono, like Mono Green Walkers is a deck that I've talked a lot about. And it's a deck that I think, I, mean, I don't think he created it from the ground up. But I know that he refined it and changed a lot of cards and showcased it. And then it's, it's, it stuck until companions, of course, like it was a thing. It was a tier one deck that was always showing up and it was a tier one. And that's something that, you know, it's, it's pioneer. It's not modern. It's a na- more nascent format format rather. And modern is a little bit more established, but there's the card pool and, and, and depth of the game. And we've seen spike do this and other streamers do this is they'll figure out either interactions that are unexplored or, responses to a metagame that are currently unexplored and make something new and and good that becomes a real deck or people refine it to become a real deck the community is really good at doing that and the metagame changes constantly and everything is contextual so as you guys talk about in great detail right the, the metagame is always changing so something it's so one of the advantages that you would have had if you spent a lot of time sort of pouring through the sort of cards on the fringes of a format is that you just sort of have a a back catalog a little notebook of failed ideas ideas that didn't quite work out the timing wasn't right but at some point maybe the stars align and actually counterbalance is very good in modern and that's what i think Everett was able to do so it's not simply a matter of just you know brewing for for the sake of science I, i think there are real competitive edges to be gained if your goal is to sort of be a pace setter in the metagame All right, this is the last one. It's barely a question. It's kind of just a thought. Please brew with Nahiri the Harbinger in Pioneer. That's from Trevor. (laughs) I wanted you to hear him. Uh, In Pioneer, in Pioneer specifically. Yeah. Okay, Uh, I'll see what I can do. I had a sweet deck for Nahiri in in Modern. Um, It was a Luka Luka Emrakul deck that also incorporated the Sahili Felidar Guardian combo. Uh, this is something that uh, David, my co-host, was was promoting heavily. And um, the the trick there being that Felidar Guardian, if you hit it off the Luka minus two, to can actually just blink the Luka to continue up the chain immediately up to Emrakul. So it kind of like broke the 
it broke the bargain. And that's what I mean by a clever solution to something. So Luca, if you're looking at it and saying, okay, the, the bargain here is that as long as I play all one mana creatures, I can have you know, a polymorph deck that also includes mana dorks. Um, that's pretty cool. And presumably, you know, that's a fair exchange. But what if you can sort of cheat on that by playing a four-mana creature as well that still lets you give the option to go up to Emrakul? Uh, something like that is what really excites me as a brewer. Like, oh, yeah, like, that was an interesting workaround for what I thought, you know, what the the playing usage of a card was. That deck has some Nahiri's in it, so I'll see if there's a Pioneer version that can make work. <laughs> All right. Dan's on the case. Yeah, so thanks for that question. And while we're on the q a um beat i do want to just like take a minute to ask you guys a question if if i may be so bold bring it on so be bold (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i've been listening to your podcast since the beginning um and i guess the question that i have as a sort of fellow podcaster content creator is sort of what what would you say is your secret ingredient at the dive down hmm Shane is the secret ingredient. <laughs> no, I've, 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 we've, we've kind of, we've, we've talked about this and thought about it. And like people have asked us who are like, we're starting up pods or something like that. They're kind of like, give us some advice. And, and I think the ad- advice is work with people you like working with and prep, prepare. Like we, we prepare an awful lot. People who see our show notes, um, understand this at this point. Um, we write a lot. We, we think a lot about every episode before we, we go into it. And I think we have not necessarily our own interests in mind, but the interests of what we, of what we have defined as, as the listeners and what we know the listeners have wanted from us in the past. And it's to keep learning and to keep getting better at magic and to not focus on negativity and not focus on the meta dash game of you know of of Watsi and of maybe community drama and things like that. I think that we try to stay positive and try to be positive about getting better at magic and enjoying the game. That's what that's what I think it is. And then preparing based on that, with that in mind. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Um, I mean, I, I wasn't joking. Like Shane does a really good job of like keeping me to task. I think and like. Shane, I, I think you've done a nice job as a producer, and I, I have a hard time imagining being able to make this show without you. Um, well, thank you, Stan. I think, well, it's definitely a collective effort. I think, I think we are now, we're now on autopilot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think there, there, there was some, some of the things that, like, early on, it was, was learning how to do it, right? And I think that there was some, that, that required maybe, like, I definitely wanted to get this thing started and, and get, get rolling with it and, and get it off the ground. And I think we collaborated on what that would be and what format it would take and what, what we wanted to talk about and the content in it. And then we're now to the point now where we work with each other so well and we are so aligned on what the podcast is and what we want to talk about that it's, it's, not, it's no one person's. And I think that that is the best part about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like the 10,000 hour rule almost. We haven't done 10,000 hours, but we're very practiced. And I think one of the hardest things for me at first was finding not just our voice, but even my voice in, in that and like figuring out what my strengths were as a podcast producer and contributor. And once I started hearing the episodes that I loved listening to, even though I made them and like trying to like build upon the things that 
I find interesting that I know the community responds to. It was just kind of a matter of like innovating on that, finding like the restrictions within which we can experiment, but also like knowing what works well and not necessarily trying to fix something that isn't broken. So it's hard work. I mean, surely you would agree. But the work that you guys put into it really shows. And I suspect that the you're not as far from the 10,000 hour mark as you might think. I mean, it's not just, okay, there's 70 episodes of Dive Down times 1.5 hours. The, the amount of hours of prep that goes into you know preparing for a show, putting it out there afterwards, everything involved, the administrative side of it. Um, I mean, you guys are the gold standard for, for podcasts for a reason, for me personally. And I'm just it's an honor and a privilege to be invited God. actually invited for the second time to come chat with you guys so thank you so much dan i do not take compliments well so <laughs> shut up <laughs> dan thanks for thanks for coming on we really enjoy doing this with you it's it's uh, always an awesome opportunity to do this with other people in the community so thanks for substituting for dave oh yeah we didn't even mention where dave is you know dave, dave is dave's off this week he's uh, enjoying uh some family time <laughs> <laughs> who's who's Dave? <laughs> have, have I not always been the host of the, the dive down? Are we not full of retconning this? To <laughs> you can splice me back into all the previous episodes. <laughs> Dave is no longer canon. <laughs> all right, that wraps up this week's show. Dan, thanks again so much. This was fun. This is my first time chatting with you vocally and not via chat, and it was fun. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Always a pleasure. I've look forward to it thank you so much all right before we really really wrap up dan where can people find you where can people find your podcast where can people find your youtube channel yeah so our podcast is called faith is brewing you can find that all the major places where you get your podcasts if you're listening in your podcast player right now um we're probably there as well um Rogue Refinery is our new project. As I mentioned, that is on YouTube. So just go to YouTube, type in Rogue Refinery. I actually don't know the URL, but it's under the Magic the Gathering umbrella. Uh, so those are the two main places. If you want to come hang out with me more often, you know, I'm on Twitter at FaithlessMTG. Uh, we also have a Discord channel for our patrons. Uh, it's patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. If you just want to hear, hear us talk about brewing, just want to chop it up a little bit more and workshop some deck ideas, we'd love to chat with you there as well. All right, Faithless Brewing and Rogue Refinery get the official dive down stamp of approval. But that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to both of our podcasts so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave both of our podcasts a friendly rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to our show or pick our brain on something in Modern and Pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon, where joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. Find that over at patreon.com slash thedivedown. Also, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the Dive Down. You can sign up for Mana Traders using promo code thedivedown, all one word, and get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and brew more days!
You want, you want me to lead the dive down portion, Stan? Because you did break down. Sure, if you'd like to. I wrote a very nice script here that I, I saw that the script looks good. I'll, I'll riff on it. So be my guest. Uh, select all deletes. 